1: From and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, November 9th, 2012. This week, episode 263 comes to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes, and joining us from Studio C is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnik.
2: Hey Joe, good Friday,
1: everybody. Good Friday. At the controls is our engineer, Roxy V, Val Bender.
3: Hi, Joe. Hi, everyone.
1: Joining from the D.C. area will be Glenn Fellman for our halftime, and, of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wile, will join us for the roundup. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question. We're going to have an interview with Attorney Winston Ackerman. We're going to talk a little bit about some um, Hurricane Sandy issues and a little on some class action on preferred providers, etc. Before we do, though, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections,
4: the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com.
1: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management
4: Magazine. Your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean.cleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
1: All right, to listen live, you can go to iaqradio.com. Follow the link at the top that says "Go to Show." And you can also download shows there later. We can stream them direct from our homepage. And, of course, you can download shows from iTunes. We also have continuing education credits available. Send me an email at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thank you,
5: Joe.
2: Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, you can text in your answer. Congratulations! To Andy Krasowski, Comcast Metal Products, Mars PA, for answering the two outstanding trivia questions. He identified Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. as the American physician, poet, professor, lecturer, author, and important medical reformer who notably posited the controversial idea that doctors were capable of carrying pure peril fever from patient to patient. And the second question, identifying toxigenesis as the ability to produce toxins as an underlying mechanism by which many bacterial pathogens produce disease. The IEQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, November 9th, 2012, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at their website, www.trsca.org. Now for today's trivia question. Name the 1842 rule in which the U.S. Supreme Court officially recognized representative suits where the parties were too numerous to be conveniently brought before the court, but refused to bind absent parties to any resulting judgments. Back to you, Joe.
1: Okay, I'll bet our guest knows that one. Uh, Wiston Ackerman is a partner of the law firm of Robinson & Cole in Hartford, Connecticut, where he chairs the firm's class action team. He has a national practice focusing on defending insurers and other companies in class actions and litigating insurance coverage issues. He writes the blog, Insurance Class Action Insider at www.insuranceclassactions.com A recent blog titled Class Action on Preferred Contractor Program filed against Allstate. Allstate caught my attention and we invited Mr. Ackerman to join us. In the interim, Hurricane Sandy came along and caused quite a disruption on our northeast coast and to our listeners that are still having difficulties or our thoughts are out, go out to you. Thoughts and prayers go out to the folks up in the northeast. Uh, But, um, you know, we're going to try and answer some questions today about insurance issues, and we look forward to hearing more from Attorney Ackerman. Do we have some music? guest on the line. Welcome, Winston. We have you on the line. Yes, I'm here. Great. Thanks for joining us. And I'm curious, uh, you know, when we first talked, we were really, you know, looking more at the class action side of things. But since then, Hurricane Sandy came along. What type of issues are you uh, looking at with respect to coverage and and uh, other, you know, important issues with respect to what happened with Hurricane Sandy?
3: Sure. Well, um, one of the issues that's been the subject of a fair amount of uh, news is the hurricane and windstorm deductibles that insurance companies have on their policies and whether those will apply to hurricane Sandy losses, whether it truly was a hurricane in, in a number of the states where it uh, Actually, by the time it reached those states, it was not, uh, according to the nat- National Weather Service, not a hurricane. And the uh, insurance departments, I believe, in all states affected, except for North Carolina, have instructed insurance companies not to apply these deductibles. Uh, I believe there are some ongoing discussions about that, but uh, I know that some insurers have agreed not to apply the uh, higher deductibles to this loss um, based on the insurance department uh, instructions. Uh, another issue that uh, obviously is going to be a major issue in adjusting the claims and, and likely to lead to some litigation is the segregation of wind damage versus water damage. Um, many uh certainly the personal on the personal line side homeowners policies generally do not cover uh flood damage so it's really a question of uh segregating that flood damage which uh, to the extent there is insurance for it would be under the national flood insurance program policies uh from the uh wind damage uh, on the commercial side you will find some policies that will cover both flood and wind so you won't have that issue on the uh another question that um, arises there is when you have a total loss and I'm sure all of you have seen on, on news some some homes that are reduced to nothing and, and other buildings that are reduced to nothing but a slab or a foundation um, where that is the case it's a question of you know which came first the wind or the water and what caused you know was the wind strong enough to take down the building or was it the, the water that took down the building and that'll be an issue of uh, you have coverage for, uh, for wind and not for water. That will be a, a coverage issue and, and one that was litigated extensively at the, uh, in Hurricane Katrina losses. Uh, and then finally, business interruption is an area of, um, of insurance that will be uh, important for businesses here and, and is likely to lead to some disputes over, uh, again, wind versus water potentially, if the policy does not cover business interruption resulting from flood. And and um and then the measurement of those losses tends to tends to become an issue.
0: Uh, as I understand it, you you primarily work for the insurance companies, is that
1: accurate? Yes. Okay. And so from your perspective and, and I I'm curious, um with respect to the first issue you brought up, it seemed that the governors all kind of said, "Hey, you know this is uh, don't apply these deductibles. It wasn't a hurricane, and then the insurance commissions apparently followed suit per what you just said. Do you expect that to be litigated?"
3: Um I think a number of companies have already agreed to it, so there wouldn't be litigation there there It may be that one or two companies wants to dispute whether. That, that was a correct determination under their policy language, or uh, whether the you know there's there's some problem with uh, what the insurance department has done. Uh, so it's possible there'll be some, but I, I think the uh, the majority of the of the larger companies have already said they will they will agree not to apply it.
1: I'm hmm. I'm curious. Can you do you have a a ballpark idea of how many different companies are going to be affected by claims from this storm? Is it five, ten, a hundred?
3: I would expect um, in all of these jurisdictions, you're probably looking at uh, 100 or more different companies that write property insurance in these jurisdictions. Hmm. Interesting.
1: Cliff, do you have any follow-ups? Um, no, not really. Okay. I'm just curious. There was another thing I've been reading about. It's an anti-concurrent causation clause, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could explain what that is and whether you think it will apply in, in
3: this case. Sure. I mean, anti-concurrent causation clause is part of the language that's in an exclusion in a policy for flood and a few other exclusions, such as the Earth Movement exclusion. It basically explains that the exclusion applies to a loss caused by, say, flood, for example, regardless of any other cause or event that contributes concurrently or in any sequence to the loss. And that has been the, was the subject of some litigation um, following Hurricane Katrina um, one example uh, in Mississippi the issue eventually found its way to the Mississippi Supreme Court and the Mississippi Supreme Court ruled uh, essentially that if, if there is um, the anti-concurrent causation clause does not exclude coverage for wind damage to the extent that there is you know, separate and segregable wind damage and it really would uh, apply only in a circumstance um, where you have both forces acting you know, concurrently and causing damage um, at the same time, in
1: which case that damage would be excluded, according to the Mississippi Supreme Court. Curiously, when you say
0: one of the issues
1: is whether it was wind or whether it was flooding, and you know you you work with the insurance companies very closely, I'm curious, from your perspective, what would What would some of the things that the building owners, whether they be commercial or residential, what are the kind of things they should do to help clarify that for their insurance company? Are are there certain records they should keep? Is there uh, documentation, photographs? And, you know, how effective can that be when you've got one person that does a good job of documenting what happened and another that just
0: says, well, I'm just going to put in a claim and see what happens?
3: I think there are things insurers can do in terms of trying to preserve uh, preserve the property for inspection so the insurance company can inspect it without um, you know, things already having been done, except to the extent that you know, emergency uh, repairs or emergency action may need to be taken. Uh, so preserving the property, which is one of the things the policy talks about typically, and um, taking photographs would not hurt Take photographs. If you have photographs of the property prior to the loss, that's helpful to provide to the insurance company and make sure you retain those to the extent you have them. Um, but ultimately, it's really a question of uh, you know, the, the experts going out there for the insurance company and trying to um, taking a look at the wind records and other data that they can um, that they can gather together with the you know condition of the premises and making. Making those determinations.
2: Do you have any idea what percentage of people had flood insurance? Um, I guess either in New Jersey or New York
3: or both. I don't know. I haven't seen a figure on that. Um, what what oftentimes happens, at least on the side of the personal lines homeowners situations, is that people customarily do not buy home flood insurance unless their mortgage company requires it. So they're truly in a flood zone, and sometimes these events, certainly with Hurricane Katrina, they went beyond what uh, the National Flood Insurance Program considered to be flood zones at that time. So I'm not sure whether or not that was the case with this storm, but you may find people that sustained flooding in zones in areas that were not uh, expected to flood in the, you know, every 100 years or so. Um, under the National Flood Insurance Program, at FEMA expectations. So those people may not have coverage. You also find that uh, mortgage companies typically require that you buy coverage only up to the uh, amount of the mortgage. So if, the, if you have some substantial equity and you choose to buy coverage only up to the amount of the mortgage in order to save on your premium, then you'll have uh, ins- you could have insufficient coverage for flood. The NFIP also has a, has a total maximum limit of $250,000 for residential, and there's a similar limit. I don't recall exactly what it is for small commercial properties. And those, uh, you know, at times certainly on the shore in New York and New Jersey, you may have uh, properties that really are, are have a replacement cost substantially higher than the maximum flood coverage. So that's going to cause uh, a problem. The only the only option there is uh, is private insurance excess above the uh, above the National Flood Insurance Program limits, and that, that can be expensive, so some people don't buy it. So those are areas where you will find a, a lack of sufficient coverage, um, but I'm not aware of sort of any statistics on how, what percentage of people that needed coverage it have it or don't have it.
1: Cliff, do you have another follow-up? Nope. Okay. Just, um we deal we have a lot of listeners that are disaster restoration contractors. They go in after these major events and they go in and uh, you know try and make people whole and clean up the mess. Oftentimes one of their biggest complaints is getting payment and, and getting timely payment more than more than just getting payment in general. Any tips for our restoration contractors on, on how to get more timely payment?
3: That's not something I deal with regularly, but from what I understand, I mean getting your uh, your estimate and your uh, your invoice carefully prepared according to the insurance company's guidelines, and you know, oftentimes using the estimating program that they prefer, such as Xactimate or whatever the the program is that the company prefers, is is something that's important in terms of getting it um, getting. Faster payment and you know being able to submit that electronically through the company's system can also speed that up. And then just sort of just following up. I mean, is a time when you find that adjusters are very busy and and they've got to approve those they approve those payments typically. So the um, more you can you can reasonably remind people of uh, to do that, uh, I think the faster the uh, payment probably will get will get issued. I guess you know word.
2: one one thing with Xactimate is that you know it has. Uh, pricing for different materials and so on and so forth and what happens is in a disaster situation like Katrina or like Sandy local resources get exhausted pretty quickly and people have a tendency to raise prices on different raw materials and, and so on and so forth and that can be a difficult problem when a contractor has to pay more for plywood etc than one of these uh, programs allows and he, Comment on that.
3: I mean, in, in my experience, I think in, in Katrina, the uh, program typically is updated on a regular basis with updated pricing that should reflect uh, you know, market conditions. But the, I mean, the contractor and the insured can always have a discussion with the insurance adjuster about areas where pricing may not be consistent with what they're finding when they go to purchase materials. As far
1: as um, class action type, I know this is that's your area especially, and we we want to go into that a little more, especially in the second half of our discussion here today. But can you give us an example? And, and I think I know you did some things with Katrina of the types of class actions that come from these major events.
3: In um, Katrina, I can give an example. You know, flood exclusion was a subject of. Some class action litigation, where uh, the plaintiffs, um, the insurers, were making an argument that the flood exclusion did not apply because uh, the word "flood" should be limited to a purely natural event, and the contention was that the uh, flood that occurred at the time of New Orleans, uh, time of Katrina in New Orleans, was a uh, was a man-made cause because of the failure of the levees and the flood walls. That's not something that we'll find here, but that, that's, that's an example uh, of the type of issue. Another issue was there was a statute called the Valued Policy Law in Louisiana that applied to total losses, and there was a class action suit. There's a number of them brought uh, on the question of whether when you have a total loss that's caused by both wind and flood, uh, the statute required
0: the insurance companies to pay the total policy limit how difficult, it's got to be tough to differentiate
1: between the wind and the water loss in some of these. Any comments on that and ways that people can maybe assist their, their insurance company with um,
0: sorting that out? Yeah, I think that's
3: really a case-by-case factual determination that requires you to look at all um, at all pertinent factors, if it ultimately winds up in court and there's a trial on the issue, there'll be typically expert evidence on both sides. Um, in a situation where there's really a large loss and the insured has the resources to hire an engineer, uh, I've seen that happen where both you know both sides have engineers look at it and they try to reach sometimes they try to reach agreement on what the uh, what the correct result is. Uh, I've seen engineers look at. Uh, a number of factors, including you know wind speed data, storm surge, height data, and the timing of both of those. Um, they've looked at, uh, they'll want to know the uh, elevation of the property, so you can, uh, you know, typically an elevation certificate for properties that have flood insurance, they, they should have a, an elevation certificate that shows um, where they are in terms of sea level, and that, that can give you a better indication of where the... Uh, where the flood flood line uh, was. I mean, they they do look at the flood line, but the flood line is is not necessarily a full um, the only thing you want to look at on that kind of issue.
1: Any, Any thoughts on what may happen with respect to insurance premiums as a result of this? Did the insurance companies, I mean, were they prepared for this? I mean, Obviously people complain about insurance companies and the cost of insurance but they you know they do a cost benefit analysis they they have to figure out what what their risk is and then um you know price things accordingly and there seems to be you're, you're talking maybe 100 different insurers out there so there's quite a bit of competition at least um it seems to me there's quite a bit of competition any thoughts on what this may do to insurance premiums, is it something they were expecting eventually and they're they prepared for it, or is it kind of unexpected that it occurred at this magnitude and now we're looking at the potential for rather significant increases?
3: I think insurance companies are taking a careful look at you know, climate change and whether this is something that is really a rare event that happened uh, you expect to happen every, you know, 20 or 30 years or whether this is a sign of something that is you know, due to climate change and, and factors like that is something that is likely to continue to occur uh, more frequently than it had in, in the past and perhaps uh, even with greater intensity at times than we saw here. So it's, it's a question of, uh, you know, I know just from personal experience uh, living in Connecticut, even though I'm not anywhere, Near the shore, my premium went up last year after we had Hurricane Irene, which was the first, uh, I think, the first hurricane or tropical storm we had in, in many years here. And now we had another one again this year, so it's it's. Um, it wasn't a direct hit in Connecticut, but still had a substantial impact, at least on the on the shore. So um, I think people are anticipating that we may see another increase next year.
1: Cliff, any follow-ups on that? Good. all right I'm just uh, this has been an interesting uh, couple of weeks here actually, actually it's going on two weeks I guess with respect to this most recent event but uh, what I'd like to do now is talk a little more more about the the class action side of things because that's your your area of expertise and and uh, maybe first you could just give our listeners a little background on on exactly what a class action lawsuit is, maybe how they you know how um how they come about I guess.
3: A class action lawsuit is uh, brought on one person or a few people typically seek to bring a claim on behalf of others that have similar claims, and those other people are known as the class. And uh, the people that are bringing the class are called the, the proposed uh, class representatives or the named plaintiffs, and they they file the lawsuit. They file a you know written document as to what claims they're seeking to bring with the court. And they ask the court for permission to represent the class and to certify the class action as as a case that's appropriate for um, to be treated as a as a as with all of the people uh, participating in in the suit and with the class representative uh, acting on their behalf in terms of all the, the various steps of the lawsuit. So one of the uh, one of the key points in these types of litigation, one of the key rulings that the court will make. Is whether uh, whether the class should be certified in the sense of whether this is an issue that's appropriate for the court to resolve on a class-wide basis, with you know, with the ruling being uh, the ruling of, of the judge or the jury being applicable to everyone, um, or whether it's the kind of issue that really people need to bring on their own separately if they want to pursue it. Uh, and the court also would rule as to whether the person that's seeking to bring it is, is qualified and and able to represent the class and whether the lawyers that are seeking to bring it on behalf of that person are are able to represent the class.
1: You know, before I go on with that, I did have one other quick follow-up on this whole Katrina thing. Or not Katrina, uh, Sandy. Um, we, we've got some people that claim to be having some issues with respect to you know, the air um, after the hurricane and and obviously there's going to be some, you know, oil and uh, maybe asbestos and other things in the air, and then you know you may you're going to have obviously um a lot of mold and and water damage and bacteria in these homes um Are the insurance companies expecting any claims with respect to health issues or or have they pretty much written the policies in a way nowadays that that's going to be very difficult to do
3: I think it varies by company and by policy form. I know I've seen some policies that will cover mold but they're going to put a, a dollar limit on that that uh, may be you know, lower than what's needed I've seen you know, limits of ten or $15,000 for mold um, so I think on that, on that side it would be important for people to try to get in there and get um, get work uh, done or at least clean up done uh, before uh, significant mold is going to grow. On the, on the question of oil, you could run into you know, pollution exclusion issues there uh, on the question of sort of bad air, uh, again, you might run into issues with pollution exclusion. There was a recent decision by the Supreme Court of Virginia on uh, in the Chinese drywall context where it really it's something that creates a problem with the air as well as problems with wiring and plumbing, and that was an area where the Virginia Supreme Court found that the
1: policy did not provide, the homeowners policy did not provide coverage. So in general, I don't, I mean, personally, I don't see this happening. A lot of um, lawsuits with respect to, you know, they didn't respond quick enough, now I have mold, now I'm sick. It seems like they're pretty well, the insurance companies have pretty well covered themselves with respect to that issue over the last 10 years. Just curious if that's the way you see it, too.
3: I think the obligation really is on the insured under the policy to do the cleanup uh, and not... not wait uh, really on that. Um, The insurer should be out there um, getting someone to clean it up to the point where you're going to hopefully reduce the impact of mold, and that's uh, an area where you might have some limited coverage in a policy and and, and insurance, uh, it it could be a conversation with the insurance adjuster about that, but it's going to depend on the specific policy
0: form. Yeah, because it's going to be really tough for people to do much early
1: on. You know, they don't have any electric. They don't have any, um, the The existing disaster restoration companies are pretty stretched at this point, just pumping water out, etc. So it should be interesting to see how that uh, how that goes because I'm starting to see a lot of articles in the papers about, you know, what, what the mold issue is going to become in some of these homes that are sitting with no electric for the last, you know, 10 days and some water in them, maybe a lot of water in them. So that'll be interesting to uh, keep an eye on. I would like to, at this point, we're going to break for what we call our halftime here. We've got Glenn Fellman from IE Connections, Indoor Environment Connections. He's got a couple quick news updates, and then we've we'll, uh, will we got to thank our sponsors. So let's thank our sponsors first, and we're going to bring you right back in about three minutes and uh, finish with the second half of the interview with uh, attorney Winston Ackerman. And we're going to talk a little more about the preferred provider issue after this break. Yay. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air
4: Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org.
1: And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
4: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com and, of course, our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at
1: ieconnections.com. John Don products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean
4: Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and
1: products. All right, let's see if we've got Glenn Fellman. IE Connections, what's news? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We've got two songs at once here. All right, let's bring Glenn on. <laughs> our engineer is a little under the weather here, as is our host, uh, co-host. Uh, Glenn, do we have you?
5: I'm here. How
1: are Uh, you? Great. You know, other than this doggone uh, cold I've got on here, I'm doing great, and uh, Val and I are feeling feeling pretty good otherwise. Uh, What's news, buddy?
5: Well, it's been a really quiet couple of weeks. Not much has happened. <laughs> yeah, kind of quiet. No, <laughs> no. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with Sandy rather than the election because I I think that's in in a lot of people's minds right now. You've already talked a lot about about Superstorm Sandy and 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 the devastation that it's caused along the uh, eastern shoreboard from really Delaware. Delaware is sort of the forgotten state of all this, but uh, Delaware all the way up through uh, New York and into New England. What I wanted to talk about today uh, was really the resources that are available to your listeners that they might not be aware of. Uh, of course, you've got, and please, the, the acronym, please, are going to have to give me a break today, Joe. No you've brain, got yeah. FEMA and you've got the CDC. That's, you know, FEMA.gov, CDC.gov. There's some great information on their web pages. But also look to the um, nonprofits in the industry. The American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA, they've put together some great uh, information for consumers. Uh, The Restoration Industry Association (RIA) they've not only put up information for consumers, but on Tuesday of this week they released a uh, a special edition of their newsletter, which is available to anybody who wants to, to to have a copy. Go to their website. That helps link contractors who either have equipment and personnel to lend, or who need equipment and personnel. Uh, for disaster restoration, cleanup, and, and related work, and then of course the Indoor Quality Association also has a lot of information on its website related to disaster west restoration and, uh, and these types of catastrophes. And I would be remiss if I did not also mention uh, IICRC, the Institute of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification. So uh, your listeners would be well advised to check out those websites uh, for those different groups and look for the latest guidance on uh, Hurricane Sandy. Response. So, uh, moving on, we did have a little thing this week called a presidential election and uh, a lot of other types of elections as well on Tuesday. And uh, as you all know, Barack Obama remains our president. The Senate uh, maintains its control of the uh, uh, excuse me, the Democrats uh, re- retain their control of the uh... US Senate and the House of Representatives stays with the Republicans. Uh, the numbers have shifted a little bit, but uh, the majority still lay where they lay, which a lot of people uh, says means that we should look for maybe not too much change in Washington in the next four years, uh, although I would disagree with that. I think we will see a lot of change in Washington, uh, whether it comes from the executive level, uh or from congress we will be seeing things that are different. We did a article in our October edition of Indoor Environment Connections talking about some of the things that might be different under an Obama administration versus a Romney administration. I'm not going to get into each of those different things, but we covered everything from drywall uh litigation to lead paint, uh, green buildings, uh money for asthma. And you can check that out in uh our, our October edition at wwwieconnectionscom and uh, it's still a pertinent article because it does talk about um, you know what 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 is likely to happen uh, under an Obama administration
1: yeah I think the energy I also guys wanted are probably comment, happy. okay sorry <clears throat> I'm, I'm I say I think the energy guys are probably pretty happy because I, I think there will be those programs will continue with respect to sealing up buildings essentially
5: but uh yeah, with the the program that they call uh the green button initiative is is uh already been announced it's moving forward it's a, a department of energy uh program that uh it's a consumer centric energy information sharing approach is what they call it uh but basically they're gonna uh, provide consumers with convenient access to their own energy usage data and uh that's something that uh obama's energy department was ready to launch and um uh, uh, they've got the uh, they know what they've got for the next four years. Uh, that's moving forward. So you're right, Joe. There's going to be a lot of uh, things coming out of the DOE, and that's going to be a very important agency to watch with respect to green buildings and, and uh, IAQ. Um, I want just, in terms of commentary, one of the things that's interesting um uh, you know, people call this election sort of a, a referendum for the country on which direction to go. And certainly, we had two candidates with very, very different visions of of uh, how they wanted to see America governed. And that, you know, was borne out in in, in the election itself, with with such a close popular vote. Um, and and when you see the, the map of the red and blue states, it's obvious that uh, you know there's a lot of difference of opinion in this country. Uh, you can look at state referendum issues and how they went. Um, I mean, we'll take, uh, f- uh, for example, uh, gay marriage. Uh, some states approved it. Some states uh, validated that marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, look at other uh, issues like uh, marijuana we saw marijuana approved uh, legally approved not just for medical purpose but for, for recreational purposes in two states uh, whereas we saw it um, declined in other states for medicinal purposes so there's really a very wide range of opinions tying that back to indoor air quality um we have states that are looking to deregulate, and we have states that are looking to increase revenues and regulate, and I think the states are something our, our your listeners should watch very, very closely. I've already received, just this week, in fact, uh, within the last week, notice from uh, Virginia that they're reexamining their asbestos contractor rules and their lead uh, contractor rules and regulations, and again, it's part of the uh, uh, ongoing effort in the state of Virginia to streamline government through deregulation. So those are things that we'll be watching very, very closely in indoor environment connections next year, and I encourage your listeners to pay a lot of attention to as well. I uh, think I've used up my allotment of time and maybe a few minutes more, so I'm going to turn it back to you, Joe and Cliff, and thank you for the opportunity to come on today.
0: Oh, thank next you, fun. Glenn.
1: Hey, Glenn, before you go, um, I, I wanted—I actually was going to pull you up anyway because we've got Attorney uh, Ackerman back on the line. Did you have any other follow-ups on the hurricane? Sandy, or what did you call it? Superstorm Sandy. I guess that's the new terminology. Uh, just curious if there was anything you were hoping to hear.
5: Um. Well, I, you know, the thing that I, I I I am most interested in, and I have to admit it, that I have a selfish interest in it because I have a lot of family from New York and, and family that lived, and I use the past tense on Staten Island. Is you know, what about all these people who? Um, Know, who don't have uh, the right kind of insurance know what 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 are their recourses uh, what can they do um, not, not just you know how can we help them but what what can they do to um, possibly recover some of their loss and and if they can't um, you know what kind of federal assistance or state assistance might be available to them in the way of loans and other types of opportunities. So those are things I'm really interested in because um, it hits close to home for me. And 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 seeing those victims every night on the news, it's it's just gut wrenching.
1: Well, that's a great question, uh, Winston. Any any comment on that? Do you have any idea what you know what might be available for those that don't have the proper insurance coverage for this event?
3: Yeah, I think they will have to look to either federal or state government assistance. Uh, I know in Louisiana, following the uh, Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, the state developed a program that they called the Road Home Program, and uh, that was a resource. It was funded by a federal uh, community block grant, and that was a resource uh, for grant funds, uh, and, and fairly substantial grant funds of up to $150,000, I believe, um, for people that had uh, either no flood insurance or, or insufficient flood insurance. Okay.
1: Now, we. Um, I just had another quick. If you could kind of help me sort out wind-driven rain with respect to um, flood exclusions, is that? part I mean, it, we, we have disaster restoration guys, and that's considered to be a category three, essentially, which is you know what they call black water. It's the the dirtiest stuff that gets into a home is wind-driven rain. Excluded by the um, flood insurance, or would that be covered under wind ins- uh, under the wind side of the uh, policies? Do you have, I'm just curious if you have any idea on that.
3: Of course, I've generally ruled that uh, discrete damage that's caused by wind-driven rain is covered. So, if you have, for example, a window that breaks and and rain enters through that window and causes damage to property that uh, that generally is covered. Okay, great.
0: Alright, let's get, get to the
3: class
1: action issue that we uh, that caught our attention. You did a a, a little blog on the uh, current class action. I think it's against Allstate um, and it's uh, a class action about the preferred provider programs. Now, I go out and I, I teach courses with a lot of disaster restoration guys in them and Man, is that a topic of conversation, uh, the whole idea of preferred providers. And, you know, you've got people that benefit greatly from being part of those programs, although sometimes they wonder, you know, if they're really getting the the bang for the buck that they should be. And then you have other contractors out there that complain like crazy that they, you know, they're getting uh, pushed away, pushed aside by insurance adjusters that come in and kind of, you know, steer clients toward preferred providers, and I'm I'm curious if you could first give us a little idea of what the current lawsuit is, why it occurred, and maybe some of your thoughts on that particular one. I think it's in Ohio. Is that accurate?
3: Yes, it's a case that uh, is now pending in in the federal court in Ohio, in Cleveland. Um, It's a lawsuit that was brought by a couple of policyholders. Their last name is Boynton against alacrity which is a, um, a repair uh, company and all state and uh, the claim being asserted is a little vague in my mind but it's essentially that the fee that gets paid to alacrity for its services in sort of serving as a general contractor or, or sort of coordinating a network of contractors um, is money that uh, they claim is owed to the insured and was not authorized or disclosed to the insurance.
1: And Cliff, I know this is something you you've uh, dealt with a lot of in the past. Did you have any follow up on that?
2: Um, not on that, no.
1: Okay. Uh, so this is um. Is this the first time that there's been a, a class action against these preferred provider programs?
3: It's probably not the first time, but it's the only one that I've uh, that I've come across. Um, but it's uh, I'm not I'm not aware of others.
0: Okay, and it was a, it doesn't sound
1: like it was a big class. I mean, maybe I misunderstood what you said. It was a couple of people, and now they've have they brought other people into it, or they're looking to do that at a later point.
3: Well, that's how it always works in a class action. Uh, it's brought by you know, typically. Um, you know, this is one husband and wife here. It's brought by either you know one person or couple or a small group of people, and that uh, they're seeking to represent a class of other people in a similar situation to them. But that will be decided down the road by the court as to whether uh, a class will be certified. And if a class gets certified, then there's notice given. Those are the things that you you know the postcards that you tend to get in the mail um, for various consumer uh, relationships that you may have. Um, that that happens down the road, and the court will decide whether or not to certify the class, and then um, you know, notify the other people involved.
1: And this is over the. Well, I'm not sure I understand. It's um. And it sounds like it's not real clear to you. The the concern being that the people doing the repairs are are paying something or, or reducing their prices in some way, um, and then that's not getting back to the people who own the property
3: yeah as i understand it and it is vague, but my understanding the claim is that there is a fee that gets paid to alacrity for coordinating the network of contractors and the plaintiffs are trying to contend that that fee is something it's sort of a part of the insurance proceeds that really should have been paid to them or or should have been uh... uh, it should have been disclosed to them or authorized by them. Uh, and, and I think all state and alacrity are, are taking a different position that this is not a fee that's it's not sort of coming out of the insurance uh, proceeds that, that are owed to the plaintiff. It's uh, it's separate and, and apart from that is my is my understanding of, of what I've read there. See if I've got
1: text here does do you know of any litigation to require insurers to license or register contractors within a state in direct assignment slash repair agreements
3: I'm not aware of any litigation on that issue Uh, I would expect that uh, insurance companies as part of their process of selecting contractors for a preferred program are going to do what they can to ensure that the uh, contractors have appropriate licensing in the in the state where they're doing the work uh, I would I would expect they would they would go through that process uh, of course I think in this context you have some states that do not require licensing for certain kinds of work so that uh, you know that wouldn't be an issue in those in those contexts
1: do you know
0: do you think this is um just kind of a
1: loan suit out there that really isn't uh you know, going to go too far or maybe the start of other suits? I mean, this is just one person or one, you know, one one plaintiff and one insurance company and we know there are numerous preferred provider programs out there. Do you see this as something that may gather a little bit of um, you know, strength as it goes along? Uh, Maybe just the start of legal action with respect to these types of programs, or is this something that may just be a nuisance for Allstate and should go away pretty quickly?
3: I mean, I know that uh, Alacrity and Allstate have both filed motions to dismiss, and I did uh, link to those on an updated blog post that I did on this, Uh, and... You know the court hasn't ruled yet, but if the court grants the motions to dismiss, this could very well go away. Um, if the case, for some reason, is not dismissed, then sometimes that's the point where the, the lawyers that typically bring these kinds of class actions decide they want to give it a shot at, at suing another company on or more companies on the same kind of issue. So, oftentimes, what you find with these kinds of cases is they will file uh, they'll file one case against one company and and see if they get any. Uh, if they have any success in the lawsuit, and then if they do not have success, they may go away. If if it, if they do have success, then sometimes it, it snowballs into additional uh, additional filings against more
0: companies. So we should be keeping an eye out for the first ruling on this, and
1: then you know, depending on which way it goes, we may see it start to snowball, or we may just see it go away.
3: Yeah, I think there's two major rulings. I mean, one is the motion dismissed. If the motion dismissed is granted, then the case is going to go away. And then the second part would be a decision on class certification. So if the court does not dismiss the case, at a later point, there will be a decision on whether to certify the class, and that's the second major step in these kinds of cases. So if the court decides not to certify a class, then uh, oftentimes uh, things more or less go away. If the court certifies a class, that means you know everyone gets noticed, and the case uh, case goes forward. At that point, uh, again, that's another stage at which lawyers may see this as an issue they want to pursue against other companies because of the success in, in certifying a class. If they're if they're able to certify a class, Cliff,
2: um, I've got a I've got several questions. I, I guess the first is, you know, speaking on behalf of uh, contractors. They have a responsibility, and oftentimes uh, they feel that the responsibility is to who brought them to the dance. You know, it's not unusual for an insurance company to recommend uh, either a specific contractor or a, a number of contractors who they consider to be pre-qualified, and as opposed to. The Policy holder looking in the yellow pages and hiring uh, you know the contractor of their choice who might be biased or, or lean towards their interest so I guess number one uh, i I guess we have to uh, bring out this potential bias uh, and you know, what should a contractor in a preferred program do, you know, you know when he goes out there and he sees something that's in a gray area? Uh, you know, should he lean towards the policyholder, or should he lean towards the insurance company?
3: Yeah, this one is not so much a legal issue, but I think in terms of uh, a contractor wanting to avoid litigation the uh, probably the best approach is try to work work carefully and closely with both the insured and the insurance company to try to reach an agreement on what needs to be done and i, I think both uh, both contractors and insurance companies care about their reputation and want to achieve uh, a good reputation with the with their customers so uh, I, I would consider the the customer to be a customer of the uh, of the insured as well as the, as, as a, you know, if, if, it, if it's a contractor that is a on a preferred program, I would think it's the best approaches for a contractor probably is to consider themselves working for both the insured and the insurance company because oftentimes insurance companies will not send, you know, they'll not give just one name but but multiple names and, and to the insured and the insured then picks from the, you know, selection of, of preferred vendors that the insurance company uh, suggests. So uh, they, they have competition as well, and, and I think they uh, care about their reputation. So I think the more that the uh, contractor can develop a good reputation uh, with the insured so that you know, other people that have a need to, for insurance repair may get referrals uh, by the insured as well as a good reputation by with the insurance company. I mean, the best way to do that is really you know try to work with both sides and try to be honest with the uh, or the company when the, the estimate that they prepared is incomplete and, and needs to include some more things and uh, at the same time be be careful about um, you know not allowing an insured to sort of try to get uh, try to get payment for upgrades and things that, that you know are not are going beyond what uh, was there at the time of the loss so I think you want to try as best you can although it's always a difficult um, difficult thing to do but try to be that middleman that tries to keep the other, uh, the other two parties happy you know I think one of
2: the the things that we would advise contractors is to you know kind of look at it as though they are working for their mom or you know working for the grandmother and um, you know if you kind of look at it like that you know sometimes you know there can be a little bit of guidance there. You know these preferred contractor programs generally provide a preferred contractor with a significant amount of work And what happens is the insurance company receives discounts in pricing based on this volume. And what can happen occasionally is that, you know, a policyholder wants to use their own contractor who may not be part, it may may be the person that built their home, for instance, who may be not part of a preferred contractor program. And, you know, the adjuster is trying to hold the, uh, insurance preference of contractor to some sort of list of prices that are uh, based on volume. And, uh, yeah, can you comment on that?
3: Yeah, it's, it's not the kind of thing that I regularly deal with, but, um, I would expect that there would be some room for negotiation there with the adjuster. Um, and ultimately, the contractor has to make a decision whether or not to do the work. I mean, insurance companies do have some leverage, and that's what helps keep, uh, you know, keep the premiums down for their insurance.
1: Okay, Joe, back to you. I'm just curious. It does seem, you know, I, a lot of the guys that don't participate in the preferred provider programs, you know, they they consider it in some ways almost to be like, um, I don't know, like, like um, Car you know uh, auto people that are repairing damage from accidents etc, and that um, the prices are driven down so much they really you know can't participate can't make money at that level and they they'll sometimes consider it to be almost like price fixing do you do you hear those types of comments when it comes to these preferred preferred provider programs and as someone who represents the insurance industry? you know how do you respond to those things i'm sure there's a very legitimate reason for you know why they do it this way why do they do this
3: i mean i think uh, along those lines that uh insurance company probably would take the position that the uh you know if if there were not uh contractors out there they were able to do the work for the price the company was uh, offering and Able to do it in a way that would make a profit for them, and 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 so on. Uh, if it wasn't profitable for them, then you wouldn't have people doing the work. So uh, it may be that the the preferred contractors are are more efficient, or uh, just uh, have greater um, economies of scale that they can apply, and and that uh, ultimately is to the benefit of of not only insurance companies but also the policyholders by you know reducing the cost of uh, of
0: insurance. Okay. I'm just curious, does, the, exactly, you just said it at
1: the end, the cost of insurance, it helps to reduce the cost of insurance. So that's, that seems to be a, you know and rightfully so, I'm sure, a, a pretty big uh, defense with respect to any of these issues, you know, with deductibles, with preferred provider programs, with um, the concurrent, um, what do you call it, uh, anti-concurrent causation clauses. Are these all, you know, designed to help keep premiums down to some degree?
3: I think that's right. To some degree, they, they keep premiums down, and they also, uh, to some extent, uh, allow insurance companies to better measure measure the risk. Um, it's uh, part of the reason why you have the flood exclusion, for example, why it's it's been in the policies for a long time is because you... They, they can't spread that risk sufficiently. I mean, if you if you had a system where everybody was required to buy flood insurance, even if you live in the high and dry area that that uh, it's highly unlikely you're ever going to get flooded, then that would be um, that would be a, a way that the companies could could spread the risk. But when you have a you know something like flood that you, know, you clearly know where you have higher risk and those are the people that are going to buy it, it just doesn't allow sufficient spreading of the risk. For, for companies to, to underwrite that sort of coverage. You know,
1: I just realized Val just pointed out to me, I lost track of time here. We're, all, we're running low. Now, we can stay a little longer. Do you have to run right away, or can you stay for an extra couple minutes here? I can stay for a couple minutes, sure. Okay. Let's go to the roundup here. What we do is at the end, we have, you know, we give one last question, and I'm going to pass on my last question and give that over to Cliff because this is one of his areas. We'll have Dr. Weil make a quick comment, and Glenn may have a last question.
5: Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide.
0: Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw hole.
1: Let's see if Glenn has a final question first. Then I want to go to Cliff, and then we'll get Dr. Wiles' final comments here.
5: I do. Um, I got a good one. I think it's a good one at All least. Right. <laughs> in, in October, a federal court awarded a Colorado man $7.2 million for developing a chronic condition known as popcorn lung. His lawyers argued that his breathing problems were caused by a chemical used in flavoring microwave popcorn. Uh, jurors apparently agreed that the popcorn manufacturer and the supermarket chain that sold it were negligent by failing to warn on labels that the butter flavoring, uh, diacetyl, which I, I said wrong and Dr. Wilde can correct me on, <laughs> yep. uh, was dangerous. Uh, the court decided that the manufacturer of the popcorn was liable for 80% of the, uh, the 7 million-plus in damages. and The supermarket chain was liable for 20%. So, I'll take this question to the guest. Are we going to be seeing class-action suits about popcorn lung in the future?
3: Uh, I mean, that kind of issue typically is not uh, appropriate for class certification. Most courts have said that uh, that sort of a personal injury. Uh, You really have to look at each person's uh, situation, their health history, and and figure out what the, uh, you'll need experts to testify as to what the uh, problem was. So that kind of issue, although it's sometimes class action suits are brought, it's pretty rare that the class is going to
5: be certified. Any comments on that suit in general? Is it something that you've been following or that, uh, um, you know, had... Appeared unusual or interesting to, to, to in your circles.
3: Uh, it's the first time I've heard of it. Is uh, when you just mentioned it now, so I, I've not followed it. It uh, does strike me as an unusual claim, but uh,
1: not not familiar with. It. I think this guy ate like. I don't know how many bags of popcorn a day, Glenn. I mean, it was, it's got to be astronomical to get that kind of exposure. Uh, but.
5: Oh yeah, there was, there was there was definitely a lot of popcorn popped in his <laughs> house. Well, listen, I know your, your 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 time's precious right now, so I'll pass on to uh, Doctor Wild. Thanks, or for,
0: thanks
1: for joining Thank us, Glenn. You. Cliff, I want to make sure if you have a final one, you get it in here before we get to data.
2: Uh, Well, in terms of the popcorn lung situation, actually, I think there's something to that in terms of workers from the fragrance company actually experienced health issues, and there was a big case and big settlement there, and I guess this is a carryover, I guess, into into the retail market, but I'm not sure that the grounds of this particular class action suit uh you know over some fee maybe paid to a third party administrator it, it is really valid but i do think there is some vulnerability based on some of the ways in which preferred vendor programs operate i'm just wondering whether or not um insurance companies are really looking at this case carefully and whether they're either going to change or potentially do away with these types of of programs, uh, and, and I figure, with your position working for insurance companies, you may have some
3: insight on that.
5: I mean, I, I doubt this will, will
3: result in the uh, doing away with preferred provider programs. Uh, I think uh, one thing it might um, it might lead to could be greater disclosure. Um, and acknowledgement by the insured of uh, you know how the uh, how the parties in the process are being compensated for their work uh, i think if uh, although it's probably not necessary to do that um, if that had been done in this case um, you know just assuming the allegations are true if there was a disclosure and an acknowledgement written signature by the insured as to this fee that was being paid and then that you know that probably would the case would uh, would never have even been brought so that um that's something you may see in this in this kind of circumstance
0: great Thank you. great question cliff let's
1: get Dr. Wow on hopefully he'll get us a, a quick comment and we'll let you go here and if you've got to run um, we understand <laughs> hello Dieter do we have you on the line Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you great. Any quick comments or
6: questions? I heard about the popcorn case, and uh, no, Glenn, I do not know what the active ingredient is. I I I thought the butter taste came from butter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a mechanical engineer. (laughs) Tell you how much I know about chemicals. Uh, It sounds to me pretty disgusting that there is no butter in butter-tasting popcorn. But anyway, the other thing is with these insurance companies. Now, I I fully understand that insurance companies have to protect themselves. And, of course, I know about insurance fraud and wherever it is. But it's kind of interesting to me when an insurance company says, yeah, your house is gone, but the, what is it, whatever it is, the National Office of Hurricane Surveillance or whatever the name is, they are always on, uh, on television. But they said when it was in your front yard, it was not a hurricane anymore. Therefore, you are not covered. Uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. It sounds almost as good as the insurance on my car. Anything that breaks under the insurance, the, the warranty, which basically is an insurance. In fact, I can buy insurance if I want to prolong that. Uh, uh anything that breaks on my car is a movable part and is therefore not covered So yeah, the door is a movable car the window is a movable car the sit se- the, the t- steering wheel but needless to say there are a lot of moving parts in an engine and a transmission <laughs> i think it's, the it's other one of I those things Dinger, is where i get a little bit upset and i said hey they told me it's a 100,000-mile uh, uh, warranty and 10 years or something like this. And anything that breaks during that time, it said, like, oh, no, 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 that is not in
1: there. So that bothers me also. Dieter, I think maybe maybe we have that backwards. I don't know. Let me check with Winston. Is it? And maybe I misunderstood what you said, Dieter. If it's a hurricane, there's a chance that it wouldn't have been covered or the deductibles would have been higher but since it was downgraded the, the damages were more likely to be covered, is that accurate?
3: It, it doesn't really deal with coverage at all, What I just to clarify what the hurricane deductible is is when you have a storm that qualifies for that deductible, the insurance company takes a larger deductible so it pays less yeah. and and the insured has to pay you know say three thousand cover three thousand or five thousand, whatever the deductible is a larger deductible on that loss. So what the uh, insurance departments have said is this storm did not qualify as a hurricane uh, when it hit land, so therefore those higher deductibles cannot be taken, and the insurance companies need to pay more. So that
1: for so that so they're actually paying more, Dieter, because it, it went down to that uh, I don't know, superstorm status as opposed to hurricane.
6: Yes, okay. well, I hope so. Uh, Fortunately, <laughs> I'm at the high end of Pittsburgh and I don't need any flood insurance, but I think a hurricane or a huge storm could come any old day. At any given time, so far it hasn't happened, but hopefully it doesn't happen. Now, we all are paying insurance, whether it's for the car or for the house or our health or whatever it is uh we are all there's always room for discussions and arguments that I said hey that is terrible anyway, I saw here, and uh, Tony Ackerman doesn't know him, but I know andy Andy won again it it does help if you Listen to this program live. Yes, it
1: does. Then you have the first one on the trigger, and you win the prize. Mm. Anyway, uh, back to you, Joe, uh, and Orcliffe. Cliff. Dieter, thanks as always. We appreciate you joining us. Val, last question?
3: Uh, yeah, Wiston, uh, we always like to give our guests the last words. So do you have any last words on our show today? And also, um, if you could mention your website or your blog site? Sure. Um, my blog site is uh, it's called Insurance Class Actions Insider. The blog site is www.insuranceclassactions.com. And uh, I don't think I have anything else, but uh, thank you very much for having me. Well,
0: we appreciate you joining us, and thanks for
1: sticking around a little extra. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to attorney Winston Ackerman. Nice job on the class action stuff. Helped us out understanding a little bit more about... Insurance issues with respect to hurricanes versus superstorms and uh, all those different issues we really appreciate having you join us I also want to say uh, next week we will have let's see I've got it here somewhere where the heck did I put that one about I know it's um Hockman Huckerman from the National Institutes of health um we're gonna we're gonna have him on next week we're going to talk about they've got a really interesting Online library now And he's in charge of that And um, a lot of great information on there uh, Dr. <laughs> Doctor Hockman Will be with us next week And I also want to thank my co-host The Z-Man, Cliff hey, Another good, another one in the can, Joe Yes, sir, another great show in the can I want to thank the the uh, IE Connections man, Glenn Fellman. Great job again. Of course, uh, I want to thank my engineer, Val, Roxy V, Val Bender, sure. and Dr. Dietrich Wow for joining us as always. And most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. Well, something-
0: IAQ Radio Production.